You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. When we first fall in love with literature, we approach it in a number of ways, as emotional stimulation, as a means of access to worlds other than our own, and perhaps as a means of learning appropriate and inappropriate ways to live. But many students of literature on both the undergraduate and graduate levels are taught to unlearn these supposedly naive approaches to reading books. But what do we lose when we stop seeing literature as a means of discovering and directing who we are? That's the question that underlies Jamie Lorenzen's latest book, Becoming Human, Kierkegaardian Reflections on Ethical Models in Literature, out now from Mercer University Press. Jamie is an English teacher at Tower View Alternative High School in Red Wing, Minnesota, and the chair of the Friends of the Hong Kierkegaard Library at St. Olaf College, and I'm delighted to welcome him to Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for coming on the show, Jamie. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, as I mentioned in my introduction, you're staking out something of a minority position here, at least among literary critics. We are hardly in the glory days of post-structuralism, but I do think it's relatively uncommon for literary criticism to talk about works of literature's role in formulating and teaching ethical positions. Would you mind making a case for that approach here at the outset? Sure. Um, you've already helped me by suggesting how, once upon a time, most of us in and out of academia fell in love with literature. This falling in love is a personal, inward, human response to aesthetically emotional, ethical, or ethical religious experiences in our heads and our hearts. And then somewhere along the way, many of us lose that love, compelled instead to respond more objectively and intellectually to what our professors wish us to respond to instead of what our hearts and heads require of us. I'm talking here about a fundamental love of wisdom, philosophy, in its primary form, which is now at odds with institutionalized scholasticism, and which is at least as old as Socrates and his spat with the sophists. And so your question about my desire to assert a minority position regarding literature's role in formulating and teaching ethical positions in tandem with your introduction, points to a relationship between falling in love with literature and then somehow losing that love. I, um, I think this is the tragedy at the front end of a career of most any teacher and professor. I understand that youthful idealism and passion is more often than not lost to cool pragmatism that experience fosters and that conscientious professors suffer this metamorphosis. What I don't understand is any person's acquiescence to a force or an abstraction antithetical to love. A force, by the way, that Kierkegaard believes the likes of all of us assistant professors, the press, the majority in the crowd both embrace and endorse. When a person who is up against such forces loses the love of literature or of life or whatever that person may need in this life to be actively engaged with life, that is where this great tragedy and sadness begins. One more note in response to your question. 
In Fear and Trembling, Kierkegaard writes of a religious enthusiast as one who attempts to remind the present age of what it has forgotten. I don't claim to be a religious enthusiast, but I am an enthusiast about reading and literature, and I can't think of anything more worthwhile than helping remind others of a love of literature or life or of one's humanity that they might have lost or at least forgotten about along the way. Authors of great literature, I believe, nurture some kind of love of being and becoming human more than nurture some kind of being and becoming a scholar in post-structuralism or post-modernism or any other post-isms that desire to go beyond and past uh, the current ism. In other words, I'm still stuck on the fundamental and very ancient question of what it means to be and to become human, which has to do with the ethical. It has something to do with the ethical, at least, I think. Authors and texts I consider in my book are also, I believe, more interested in addressing the minority position of ethics and of following one's heart and conscience along roads to being and becoming human than in following an institutionalized majority rule that more often than not denies or represses an individual's heart, conscience, and fundamental humanity. By the way, uh, Kierkegaard and Kierkegaard professor and translator Howard Hong helped me arrive at this position, which is in part why I subtitle my book Kierkegaardian Reflections of Ethical Models in Literature. Well, that leads me into the next question um, about that subtitle. I, I would love to hear about your relationship and history with Kierkegaard as a, as a writer and a thinker. Mm -hmm. um, Becoming Human, this book that I wrote, would not have been written if not for one positive role model and a few negative role models. The positive role model was Dr. Howard Hong, the resident Socrates at St. Olaf College for some 40 years. While I attended St. Olaf in the late 70s and early 80s, Dr. Hong taught a January interim course entitled Philosophical Ideas in Literature and also a semester course on Kierkegaard. That's my positive role model. Uh, I was introduced to my primary negative role models in Howard Hong's Philosophical Ideas in Literature course, including T.S. Eliot's J. Alfred Prufrock. Albert Camus' The Stranger, Merceau, and Ibsen's Peer Gant, all of whom I have never forgotten and who I truly can't thank enough for helping me steer away as best as possible from being like them, even as I claim to backslide from time to time into pathetic aspects that also are part of their and my humanity as well. Thank goodness for brief and repetitive confessions of sin. Um, but uh, there's actually one other very important fictional role model for me, uh, which I think is also worth noting. Many might consider Dostoevsky's underground man a negative role model because of how spiteful and wicked he considers himself to be. But I've always looked at him with great affection, primarily for his intense psychological insights of personhood, his advocacy of minority positions, such as 2 plus 2 equals 5, <laughs> which I take to be actually a rather calm, 
compact equation of religious faith and his scathing critique of the modern secular culture that was fast becoming the 19th century's majority position. Then there was Hong's Kierkegaard course, which simply provided the philosophical infrastructure and the primary lens through which I began to view art, literature, the humanities, life, love, everything. Really, the underground man is just this refusal to be anything other than human, right? It's, it's a refusal to be a mathematical equation. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Uh, which of Kierkegaard's books are particularly important for your vision of literary criticism? And, and what makes him a helpful conversation partner when we're talking about fiction? Mm -hmm. um, asking me this question is like asking Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory's child protagonist, Charlie what piece of chocolate or candy he would like to purchase in the Wonka candy shop. Uh, because I think if, if, if we consider the more or less lost minority position that asserts literature's role in formulating and teaching ethical positions with an eye on what it means to become human, and if that lost minority position needs to be found or regained, and then relearned before it can be fully appropriated, then there are a lot of majority positions in the world that Kierkegaard points out everywhere in his authorship that first need to be unlearned. And I think unlearning such things can be painful, for unlearning calls for disciplined self-examination and self-honesty. And so I think I'd probably first cite um, Kierkegaard's for self-examination. If only for how the book speaks of such self-honesty, something Kierkegaard would call human earnestness, which relies in great part upon ethics, patience, and humor, and what Kierkegaard calls, and I love this, he calls, a, he gets this from Socrates, an honest distrust in oneself to treat oneself as a suspicious character. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a bumper sticker out there claiming this. Uh, I love it. Uh, it re I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't have bumper stickers myself. I've, I've sort of, on principle, I don't put bumper stickers on. Sure. But, um, but this one, this is a bumper sticker I would buy. It reads, don't believe everything you think. Add to this text Kierkegaard's An Occasional Discourse, otherwise known as Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. This is a text about self-deception and double-mindedness that I will never forget reading the first time. Because as I was reading it, I was discovering... <laughs> Page after page, my own various and sundry rationalizations and self-deceptions and uh, false selves and sophistries being cut off and shut down at every turn. Uh, uh, Hong, in, his, in the essential Kierkegaard, in, in Howard Hong's introduction to Purity of Heart is to one, one thing. He's got this line, I can't quite remember what it is, but he says something like, in this, in this discourse, Kierkegaard is, 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 
pounding sand into every rat hole of double-mindedness. And he does this. Um, at any rate, there's never a book that I remember reading more than this particular book, this discourse, um, than this one to which I find myself repeatedly surrendering my lesser selves and weirdly enjoying this experience. Um, let's see. Uh, another of uh, Kierkegaard's works, Kierkegaard's works of love. Uh, that would be another text to which I would look to support this sort of literary criticism. If only for its meticulous discussion about the ethics of neighbor love and of understanding the other. For in all great, lit for in all great literature, um, for all great literature explores humans as relational phenomena. Um, I'm almost kind of riffing here from the first two pages of Sickness Unto Death. Um, in other words, a human being is a relational phenomenon, uh, one who uh, relate to themselves, who relate to others, and who relate to God. Um, I, I can't... <laughs> um, I have to put in a word in this sort of Wonka-like, uh, everlasting gobstopper um, uh, concluding unscientific postscript um, with its literary critic, satirist, and humorist extraordinaire, Johannes Climacus, persistently asking the question of what it means to be and to become a human and a Christian. Um, I could go on with texts, but um, I would like to say... In addition, one other thing. Kierkegaard himself was intensely literary, not only as a critical reader of and writer about great literature in relation to what it means to be human, but also as a pr practitioner of a wide variety of literary form and genre relative to the question of what it means to be uh, human. Um, I'm... He's, he's, he's written fictional biography and aphorisms and jokes, um, imaginary speeches and play reviews and, and, and epistles and rogue sermons that are called the discourses, um, letters and mock systematic writing, like concluding unscientific postscript. Um, he, he wrote a, a book of prefaces <laughs> that he entitled Prefaces. Um, book reviews, um, two ages as nearly as long as the the, 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 the book that he's reviewing. Uh, he's, he wrote his intellectual biography called Point of View. Um, he wrote pamphlet writing late in his life. Um, and, and he had this massive literary journal. Um, so this is a guy who's, who's um, there's a lot of candy in, in Kierkegaard's candy shop, I think. Um, anyone hungry for ethics and becoming human need only uh, unwrap uh, a wrapper to most any page of Kierkegaard to find something sweet. Well, before we start talking about the novels themselves, uh, I, I want to talk about that word ethical, which is sometimes seen as an inferior category for Kierkegaard. You, you hear it as something that needs to be suspended in order to reach the higher religious sphere. Mm -hmm. What does Kierkegaard have to say in favor of ethics? Um, something I wrote... Um, in my book's introduction may serve to introduce uh, 
a discussion about the novels and also address the very vital importance Kierkegaard places on the category of the ethical. Uh, this is just a paragraph from my introduction. Authors whose books are the focus of the following chapters, Mark Twain, Herman Melville, Henrik Ibsen, and Fyodor Dostoevsky, have something more in common than having written good books about becoming human. They also are skeptical and critical of conventions, dogma, and orthodoxy of certain offices of religious institutions, offices that, according to all of them, and also to Kierkegaard, tend to mediate, dilute, cheapen, or falsify ethics rooted primarily in, Jude in Judeo-Christian tradition. Their skepticism and criticism gain credence when readers recognize that all of the authors have a deep knowledge of and abiding respect for ethics rooted in religion. Ethics that not only express a culture's overall secular customs and group morality, but presuppose what Kierkegaard scholar Gregor Malinchuk calls, quote, a consciousness of eternally obligatory norms, which to Kierkegaard is characteristic of the genuinely ethical. In addition, here's Malinchuk again, quote, the ethics of the law in Judaism or commandments received from an eternal transcendent power completed the groundwork for what Kierkegaard calls Christian ethics or an ethic that presupposes sin and grace. Such ethics positively inform the central plots, characters, and themes of Huckleberry Finn, Moby Dick, Pierre Gant, and the brothers Karamazov. So, um, I think far from being an inferior category for Kierkegaard, ethics becomes sort of the very border region over which anyone may develop from purely aesthetic realms of thought and understanding and being, and toward ethical or ethical religious realms of thought and understanding and being. The bulk of your book involves these ethical analyses of four canonical works of fiction. You just named them Huck Finn, Moby Dick, Pierre Gint, and Brothers Karamazov. Um, we should, I suppose, begin where you begin in the book, which is with Huck Finn. Uh, the novel has remained a point of ethical contention, uh, though probably not for the reasons Twain imagined it would be. How can Kierkegaardian reflection help us to navigate through the morass of controversy surrounding this novel? Yeah, um, I assume that the primary, con and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think um, I'm assuming that the primary contemporary ethical contention to which you refer to has to do with Mark Twain's use of the N-word. That's right. Um, more, uh, and, he, and he uses this thing more than... 200 times in his novel. Um, I address this at the outset of this chapter, uh, primarily in the context of Mark Twain's wish to portray again and again and again for 200 times uh, racism and slavery's dehumanizing effects, especially in conjunction with conventional 19th century pro-slavery so-called Christian morality, a morality preferential and exclusive to race and class, and thereby one that denies the second love commandment regarding neighbor love. Um, but 
I locate the center of my Kierkegaardian reflection in this chapter on the character of Huck Finn, uh, who I, I think of him as a Kierkegaardian ethicist of sorts. The ethicist truth-teller, according to Kierkegaard, is not only undesirable and an affront, but he's also hated and treated as an outcast. For the high standards to which the ethicist aspires are also standards of which all striving human beings are capable, but that the vast majority of people just simply resist. What Huck's good heart tells him to do to protect Jim within a corrupt pro-slavery culture absolutely assures Huck that he's going to be hated and he's going to be treated as an outcast. Um, but that said, I think Huck chooses to remain an ethicist. He chooses to be lonesome uh, in his own decadent world because I think for Huck, buying into a dehumanizing culture is just selling him. Uh, Twain's relationship with religion, and especially with Christianity, is very complicated. I have always considered him an angry atheist, particularly his later work, but you make a case for him as a would-be Christian, or at least a man who sees genuinely Christian ethics as the key to life. Uh, where do you see that longing for Christianity in his work, either in Huck Finn or somewhere else? Um, I spend a lot of time in that, in that chapter on Huck Finn, um, uh, finding finding. Uh, text. Uh, there's a there's a there's, there's a text um, that is also published by Mercer University Press called um, uh, Mark Twain's Religion, and uh, uh, Phipps, uh, the author's name, um, really fills out. I mean, if you're looking if you're looking for a, a full sort of discussion of of Mark Twain's religion, that would be a great book to look at. But I mean, I, can, I completely agree with you that Mark Twain's relationship with religion, especially in his later works, is complicated. Uh, but in at least the narrow context of his great American novel, Mark Twain seems to hit pay dirt, uh, at least in the context of Christian ethics and its striving to recognize the value of New Testament Christianity, especially in the context of corrupt forms of Christianity that he saw practiced around him. And what you have to appreciate here is that, and I, I, I think I, uh, the likes of Melville also, I think, it constantly was struggling with um, uh, religious belief. Um, there are some uh, fascinating discussions um, in, through letters between him and Hawthorne about this, for instance. I think Mark Twain also had, um, uh, there was a doubt in his mind, but that, but that doubt also presupposes sort of what Kierkegaard calls faith. Faith is a restless thing. It needs to be, it needs to go through the crucible of doubt. Dostoevsky would agree as well. Sure. All of these people, though, um, I think, especially in the 19th century, they are just so steeped in, and they know... Um, the Bible, I mean, they know it. I mean, the Bible is is, is in so many places in Mark Twain's um, uh, lexicon. Mm -hmm. uh, religious language is everywhere in Mark Twain's lexicon. Um, his beef was with Christendom, uh, I think, more than at least at least during the times of of of, of Huckleberry Finn. He got he got pretty dark though.
later on. So, and and yeah, I mean, connecting him to Melville makes sense. I've I've you know, it's easy to think of Melville as a Christian mm-hmm. author. I, I just I I'd never extended that same courtesy, if you want to call it that. So. Yeah. To Twain, mm-hmm. um, I would see him as as someone who is very bitter, and maybe maybe because his work is so funny, yeah, and thus so satirical, it's it's harder for me to take that. You hear about Melville's quarrel with God. I don't yeah. I don't tend to think of Twain as having one. Yeah, but, I mean, right. I'm sure he did. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, let's move on to Moby Dick, uh, which must be one of the strangest novels American literature has ever produced, and also one of the greatest, if not the greatest. Uh, you treat this novel, or at least portions of it, as a parable of the encounter between self and other, and thus as an opportunity for ethical formulation. What can we learn from the strange relationship between Ishmael and Queequeg? Well, on first blush, um, you have this erstwhile Presbyterian Ishmael from upstate New York. <coughs> and you have this pagan Queequeg from the South Pacific. Um, that, you know, it might be considered as far apart culturally and in all other ways as their homelands are as geographically far apart. Almost opposite, almost polar opposite. So Melville, Melville uh, has this sort of strange Blakeian um, obsession with, with opposites and, with, and especially polar. polar so, so, many, so many 19th century American authors do. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Which in some ways sort of encourages sort of a, a, a dualism uh, approach to things. But I think also uh, certainly what Melville I think does, and I think Blake does this too, is I mean they, they have to identify these opposites in order to understand how these opposites, just like the North and South Pole, almost sort of keep the planet a planet instead of an asteroid, you know, falling off the the universe. So, um, at any rate, uh, back to Queequeg and 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 um, sort of these apparent opposites between Ishmael and Queequeg. I mean, together, you know, these two as human beings explore. Um, and actualize the possibilities of, I think, a uniquely American and essentially Christian spirit uh, that's predicated on mutually dependent love and mercy and forgiveness and understanding of the other. Uh, I think sort of a, a polarized Congress that we have could learn something from these two bedfellows. Um, for Ishmael and Queequeg's relationships subsequently, um, I believe, and I argue, uh, results in a happy marriage of Christian and non-Christian thought. Their relationship, I believe, succeeds insofar as it survives not by the denial or resistance to diversity, but rather by embracing the other. Um, the early so-called shore chapters, which I focus on in, in my book exclusively, um, embodies a critical wisdom of the dynamics between preaching and practicing Christian ethics in a conventional Christendom that tries to sustain itself amid an increasingly uh, pluralistic uh, American culture. What what makes the Christian encounter with the other so much more important than the sort of multiculturalism or diversity that our society tends to hold up as the master virtue? Um, this is a really important question, I think, because it, it hits at something that Kierkegaard um, talks about in works of, of, of works of love. Um, if becoming fully human has something to do with developing the self as relational, 
phenomenon than becoming fully human as something to do with relating well with others. Um, this implies ethically to move toward the other, toward the neighbor. What Kierkegaard, though, in this masterstroke in his works of love, designates as the other you, the first you, neighbor as other you, neighbor as the first you. I, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's brilliant, I think, in 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 in, uh, in works of love, so, uh, because only by moving toward the neighbor who may not be dear to you, but who is nonetheless near to you. Only by moving toward that neighbor will you come to embody you. This has much less to do with multicultural tolerance of the, of the other or celebrating, celebrating diversity of the other, and it has much more to do with you. You, in other words, must find the other. According to Kierkegaard, you must find the other lovable, despite and with his weaknesses and defects and imperfections. That's a, a quote from Kierkegaard. The, the, and, and this is another little quote from Kierkegaard. The quote, the, 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 the task is not to develop one's fastidiousness, but to transform oneself and one's taste toward the other. All for the love of the other. And, 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 and this is, here, here's where becoming human becomes meaningful in the context of Christian ethics. You, choosing to love the neighbor, may in fact be the only way you can begin to love yourself. And what's fascinating about the second love commandment is the second love commandment presupposes self-love. Right. Okay? You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, but choosing to love your neighbor in this context, it, it may be the only way that you really can truly love yourself. Here's where the other becomes far more like you than unlike you, no matter what you might want to say to the contrast, or no matter what you might want to say to the contrary. And that's, I think, a really remarkable thing that Kierkegaard says in Works of Love. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is um, this is a unabstractable love that he's demanding. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's a demand. I mean, it's not a choice. Right. You shall. I mean, this is a command, and um, commands are issued when people don't want to do them. Right. But, I, I mean, I, it just makes me think, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to him in a minute, but yeah. Ivan Karamazov, who, who has this great hypothetical love for everybody, <laughs> but doesn't actually love anybody. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder how much of cultural multiculturalism, and I, you know, I'm not against multiculturalism on principle. No, no, no. But, but it, as, it, as it kind of arises a virtue, it seems abstract to me. It yeah. seems not, not at all about actual human beings, but about like, oh, I don't know, kind of trumpeting our own multiculturalism yeah yeah it's um 
it's at the beginning of the rebellion chapter that Yvonne, in his discussion with Alyosha, talks about neighbor and the problem that he has with neighbor. He says, if they just weren't so nigh, <laughs> that is, if the neighbor wasn't just so near, right, face to face, in your face all the time, then he could love. He could love the neighbor, and and that's perfect, Yvonne, because he has to abstract it. He has to he has to completely separate. So, at any rate, we'll get to Carmont's out later. Uh, at the end of your Melville chapter, you talk about the fundamental ambiguity that arises when we view truth the way Kierkegaard does, which is to say, as subjectivity. This has been a major sticking point for a lot of conservative Christians who might otherwise like Kierkegaard. At some places in his work, and I'm thinking mostly of the concluding unscientific postscript here, he seems to suggest that the specifics of what a person believes are not as important as the passion with which she believes it. And that is certainly the impression I get from the bedroom sections of Moby Dick as well. Am I missing something in Kierkegaard? Is there room there for dogma alongside passion? Uh, I think there is. I mean, I, I, make, uh, I make the case, especially if you consider Christian dogma predicated on the two love commandments. I'm, I'm, and, and I just, that's, that's kind of my own presupposition here, is um, there are some commandments that, that are a basis of a dogma. Um, uh, for example, um, in justification of Ishmael joining Queequeg, in the idol worship ceremony, um, just as Queequeg, and it's really important, this is really important, Queequeg joined Ishmael in a whaler's chapel. Okay, they go back to the spouter's inn, to the spouter inn, and Ishmael chooses to join Queequeg in idol worship. And then Ishmael has this meditation, oh my, you know, what have I done? What have I done? Um, this is how I think Ishmael gets out of it. He appears, this, at least this is my, my take on it. Um, Ishmael appears to understand that the first love commandment, love God, is more subjectively or inwardly oriented. Okay? I mean, it's, it's more inward. Mm-hmm. Love God is more inward. While the second love commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself is more objectively or outwardly in, 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 uh, um, oriented. Um, in other words, the first commandment, love God, may be followed by the inwardness of personal faith and dogmatic belief without real show or outward example, while the second love commandment may be followed by outward action toward the neighbor, even as that outward action appears an affront, appears an affront to the first commandment. Your analysis of Pierre Gant distinguishes between being oneself and choosing oneself, which is an important distinction, especially for the young readers that both of us teach. What is the difference between being and choosing? Um, As an all-too-human protagonist, uh, this double-minded, double-visioned Pierre Gant living a duplicitous life, may suggest who we readers and viewers more often than not actually are. P. 
Peer Against Thoughts, I think, and Actions expose the follies and foibles of all of us foolish mortals, allowing Ibsen as satirist to help us see ourselves uh, in such a singular way as to attend ethically to improve ourselves and our lot. So it's ultimately the ethical question of how we are that best determines who we may become, I think. For how we live our lives in great part presupposes choice. In the case of Pierre Ghent, how we appropriate the message of the Pierre Ghent in us may help us determine who we are and what we may become, which makes Pierre Ghent transformative literature, I think. Um, becoming fully human requires understanding who we are. We are double-minded. We're many times indifferent. We're many times non-committal. And then becoming fully human requires us imagining what we ethically may become, deliberate, committed, resolved. And then we need to choose, and then we need to strive to, I think, become that which we currently are not, all of which is sometimes painful work involving long periods of self-examination and, and psychological gestation. Um, uh, in, in other words, we're less autonomous beings than we like to think we are if we have the courage and the faith to just simply apply ethics to our lives. The issue then is not simply being, uh, um, the issue then is not simply to be willy-nilly anything you choose to be in this world, but rather to be what you are ethically intended to be. A fuller human being, I think, in, uh, in which resides a better spirit than you already have. Well, uh, Pierre Gant ends ambiguously. We're not sure if Pierre has actually changed for the better or if the conversation or this, the conversion he has at the end of that play is like the many other conversions he undergoes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Why is that ambiguity, uh, to return to that word, so important? Um, Ibsen's conclusion offers a particularly modern spin on the nature of redemption, I think, precisely because we don't know if Pierre Gant is redeemed at the end of the play. Uh, the ambiguity of Pierre's final, final crossroads, there's lots of crossroads in Pierre Gant, uh, the ambiguity of Pierre's final, final crossroads, I, in other words, one that happens not on stage, but after the play proper has concluded and his life ends, um, that ambiguity, I think, is essential. Otherwise, the play would be just merely a fairy tale. And Ibsen is too wise to offer a fairy tale ending, either a good, a good ending or a bad ending. Right. I mean, I mean, that just that puts a bow on the end of this play, and Ibsen did not want to put a bow on the end of this play. Um, I think instead, what Ibsen is trying to do is he's inviting us to accept the unknown outcome to Pierre's life as the unknown outcome to our own lives. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. Some of us have faith. Some of us don't have faith. But we don't know what's going to happen. Perhaps not knowing Pierre's outcome invites us to go beyond non-committal peer himself and actually choose ourselves. Uh, in other words, ethically choose the selves that we're intended to become. We keep coming back to that notion of ambiguity, which is a, it's an important concept for literature. A novel 
Without Ambiguity is a novel that doesn't make any space for mm-hmm. its readers. A novel without ambiguity is essentially Pilgrim's Progress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of people would be a little wary of saying we can learn ethics from ambiguity. Mm-hmm. What is the relationship between those two things? And we can talk about Simone de Beauvoir or not. If that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, gosh, there's this great line uh, in Borges. Uh, in one of his short stories, um, he talks about uh, ambiguity as richness, and you know, any good Shakespeare scholar too is. I mean, sure, it's just it's uh, it's so valuable, but it can be dangerous in a, in a moral landscape, right? Um, I think, uh, but but I think ambiguity is actually the very landscape where ethics resides and finds purpose. Uh, ethics. <laughs> Ethics isn't needed when equations are as black and white as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Right. If you're in a base 10 system, this is not an ethical quandary. Um, but ethics is required when ambiguous equations, such as the underground man's 2 plus 2 equals 5, when that's introduced, all of a sudden, okay, well, what does that mean? Or, or is this just craziness? Or, or what does it mean? In other words, ethics is required, I think, when appearances ambiguously look like reality, when lies ambiguously look like truth. Because I think, you know, sometimes appearance is reality, and sometimes lies are the truth of the matter. Communion, wafer, and wine mm-hmm. is the body and blood of Christ. I believe it, or I don't believe it. You either you either take the metaphor, or or take that moment, and I mean, for some people looking in, it's just a wafer and a wine, and for others it is not that. It is infinitely much more than that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so there's even an ambiguity in 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 that. And I accept that ambiguity. I mean, it, 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 in some ways, it sort of separates the believers from the non-believers. Yeah, I mean, so. Um, but ethics, I think, I mean, the bottom line with ethics, I think, is it helps make distinctions in such a way so that individuals just make truths with greater understanding of the matter. So eth- ethics is meant to clear up ambiguity. Um, ethics is meant to make distinctions, um, not so much to cut through ambiguity like with a machete. You no, know, because you think of something like Kant's categorical imperative, mm-hmm. which is very clearly meant mm-hmm. to clearly. eliminate all ambiguity. Mm-hmm. It's always wrong to lie. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And and then, you know, Mark Twain comes by and says, um, you know, um, uh, what about lying to help others? Not just to help oneself. Not to but 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 I hear back to Huck Finn. Huck Finn is a great liar, but he never lies for self-preservation, and he never lies for greed or his own. His own. He, he lies like this incredible moment on, on, uh, when there are bounty hunters coming, coming toward his raft, where Jim is on the raft. And he has this just extraordinary deceit that saves Jim. Hmm. It saves himself too, of course, but 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 it's but he's just a, a, a white boy here, okay? It saves he lies to save Jim. So there is something that would be called an ethical lie. Um, 
Kierkegaard talks about deceiving into the truth. Um, uh, and, and what is fiction? I, I, how many? How many? How many? How many people might think that fiction is just a pack of lies? Puritans, yeah, for sure. Right, right, right. Uh, Richard, which is which is one reason I'm sure Pilgrim's Progress has yeah, to do it. Yeah, right, right. Uh, Richard Wright's Richard Wright's grandmother in, in in his autobiography Black Boy talks about fiction writing just a pack of lies. But for Richard Wright, those lies, um, those quote unquote lies. Um, developed into a far more meaningful truth that simple, simple two plus two facts can't touch. And so, to to go back to Beauvoir, I mean, what's amazing to me about ethics of ambiguity mm-hmm. is she takes she takes that ambiguity which you could use to kind of defend yourself. Well, I didn't know, you yeah. know, I I I did this for this reason, and thus I'm innocent. And says no, no, you're guilty anyway. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. That's, yeah, yeah, that's very true. I mean, if 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 that's just rationalization, right, and that's just self deceit. Right, uh, you know, right. Yeah, but there's no way, to, as you said, there's no way to cut through it like a machete. No, you can't. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. But ethics is there to understand. Uh... Well, Brothers Karamazov is a famously dialectical novel. Uh, Dostoevsky is so fair to Ivan Karamazov's atheism that many readers come away convinced by it. Uh, but you point out that Ivan's own soul is dialectical in a way that it's easy to miss. What makes Ivan so immensely complex as a character, and what do we have to learn from him? Oh, I, uh, Ivan's human, <laughs> and, um, and as a human, uh, or as human as a fictional character can be, I guess. Um, uh, and 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 what is more complex um, than being a human being? So I don't know. Um, he's human and he's complex, but but you know, here's here's what we have to here's what we can learn from him. Uh, I think for all of Ivan's commitment toward doubt. Ivan has a conscience. He's not a sociopath. He's not Smirnikov. No, he is not. No, he's not. Um, he he is a he's a Raskolnikov on steroids. I mean, in many ways, actually. I mean, I think Raskolnikov. I don't think Eva, I don't think Dostoevsky could have created an Ivan without without creating Raskolnikov. It's almost like a prototype. Well, yeah, when well, you get the underground man before yes. that, yes, the and, yes, exactly. Out it, it, it just out. gets fleshed out more. Um, so, um, so I, you know, he's not a sociopath. I think, you know, the same I, Ivan, uh, who wishes that his neighbor not be so near to him so that he must love him. And, uh, and, and the same Ivan that even allows a drunken pauper with whom he crosses paths to potentially freeze to death. This same Ivan, ultimately, if you'll remember, he recrosses paths with the unconscious peasant in this, in the winter, in November, and he turns good Samaritan. He saves this guy. In other words, I think perhaps Ivan sees in himself what he doesn't like to see in his own conception of God, namely an authority that turns his back on suffering, whatever the case. I think um, Ivan alters his behavior accordingly, and whether he knows it or not or likes it or not, he behaves ethically. So... He's a complex character. His opposite is not his brother Alyosha, um, but Alyosha's mentor, the wise and holy monk, Father Zosima, 
you know, speaking of the devil tempting you, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. most readers their first time through that novel have to really force themselves yes. through Zosima's memoirs. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and if you reread the novel enough times, all of a sudden Zosima's, these lectures just become exquisite. Pieces. Oh, and they're the most important a- thing in the novel. And so, I mean, the, the, the counterpoint to what the part everybody loves, which is the rebellion chapter. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, I mean, they are more important, or at least they're they're important if you don't want to misunderstand the novel. Yeah, it's kind of like Dante, and, you know, everybody loves hell. Every undergraduate loves hell. Oh, purgatory and, and is so much better. And purgatory is where it's all at. I, I, and, and paradise is just simply extraordinarily beautiful. Oh, I have, to, I have to say I have trouble getting through paradise. Yeah, but purgatory, <laughs> if I had to pick one... Yeah, me too. I'd pick, I'd pick purgatory. is the space where human beings actually absolutely, live. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back, to, uh, back to Karamazov. How does Dostoevsky privilege Zosima's voice in the novel, and what, is, what does he end up telling us that's so important? Um, okay, the counterpoint in Brothers Karamazov to Ivan's nihilism is Father Zosima. Um, one of many religious figures developed in Dostoevsky's novels as examples of like self-sacrifice, humiliation, self-knowledge, striving, uh, gratitude, uh, some, some of all of this that somehow thrive in dark worlds of self-interest and ego and self-deceit and self-satisfaction and thanklessness. Um, one of Zosima's teachings could perhaps be, I think, an epigram to the whole of Dostoevsky's writings. Um, For Dostoevsky, like Kierkegaard, was forever interested in how easily we come to deceive others and ourselves in pursuit of avoiding the difficult task of becoming fully human and ethically transparent individuals. Um, Zosima admonishes the Karamazov patriarch Fyodor, I, I just want to be here for that moment when he says when he says to Theodore Dustin, above all, do not lie to yourself. <laughs> um, given that Zosima knows by personal experience, though, uh, how difficult it is, even for earnest self-examination and self-honesty to rout out these self-deceptions, um, Zosima tells Alyosha that the young novice will um, uh, behold great sorrow. And this is like Zosima speaking. And in this sorrow, Alyosha, you'll be happy. And then then Zosima says this, and this is another kind of one of those lines that, that just, you know, is worth the whole book. Zosima says... Uh, to Alyosha, something like, and this is a commandment to you, or something like this. And then he says, seek happiness in sorrow. <laughs> a rather extraordinary thing to think about. Um, very Russian. Man. Yeah, very Russian. <laughs> um, but, but I think that these are words emblematic, nonetheless, of all of Dostoevsky's works, given that most Dostoevsky characters exemplify despairs from which humans suffer especially those who attempt to flee from embracing sadness by seeking happiness in the immediate or the sensual or the aesthetic and the worldly without care for the ethical or compassion for anyone. Um, It's kind of like 
and, and I have to really qualify this, but sort of like no pain, no gain. I mean, if you don't, I mean, the things that you suffer through, um, you come out at the other end and you'll never forget and you're a better person because of it. Right. So. Well, the other thing he says that's so extraordinary is, he says it over and over again in that section, everyone's responsible for everyone. Yeah. Talk about, yeah. talk about ambiguous ethics. Yeah. There's just no way to be in the right. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think Yvonne sort of hears that, you know, I, I, um, uh, especially with that sort of Good Samaritan moment that, that Yvonne... That well, and Yvonne. so much of Yvonne's arc in that novel is he finally realizes that he, he did kill his father in a way because mm-hmm. he preached all this nihilism exactly. that, that a genuine sociopath exactly. like Smirzikov can... It just buy right into. Right. Yeah. And, and this is Yvonne's yeah. fault, yeah, although, the... although he, didn't, he didn't raise a hand to his father. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, the novel is, among other things, a psychomachia. Al- Alyosha is certainly the man with the devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. He's a good man. Um, he's not a man of any kind of simple goodness, which may be why he's one of the very few genuinely good, genuinely believable characters mm-hmm. in all of Western fiction. Uh-huh. I can only think of a few. One of them is uh, George Caldwell from John Updike's The oh, Centaur. Okay. I really think yeah. he's genuinely good and genuinely believable, yeah. partly because he's insufferable. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, back to Alyosha. He has to fight for his goodness and he has to suffer for it. Why is that struggle so important to this novel's vision? Well, in the very first sentence of the book, um, and I was puzzled by this in, in first reading and second and maybe even third reading of Karmazov over the years. Um, but in the first sentence of the book, the narrator identifies Alyosha as the hero mm-hmm. of the story. Not Dimitri, um, which Hollywood would probably... Well, in, in you know, 19th century and, Russian literature, Dimitri's straight out of, um, what's his name, Pushkin. Yeah, 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 right. And um, Diane Thompson, who's a, a, a wonderful Dostoevsky critic, um, she talks about how, how um, you know, Dimitri would have been sort of the Hollywood version of the hero. Okay, and 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 um, Ivan would have been sort of almost you know this 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 I think I think it's Ivan this is sort of Greek tragedy this mm-hmm. sort of larger yeah. you know you know and so hero and, and and so immediately in the very first line of Karamazov, Dostoevsky is meth- messing with our very concept of hero um, because you know because heroes are outward they act heroes got to do something. Hero's got to go into a line of fire, and 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 something's drum- they, they they go into fiery buildings. But Alyosha doesn't outwardly do much of anything. Um, dramatic action is a staple of Western heroism, and Alyosha doesn't have that. Alyosha, though, in other words, is he, he's no aesthetic or outward hero, uh, but he is an ethical, religious hero along the lines that Kierkegaard distinguishes between these two kinds of heroes. Um, the religious hero, according to Kierkegaard, is great by suffering and not by how the aesthetic hero is great. In other words, by conquer. Aesthetic heroes conquer. Religious heroes suffer. Religious heroism, in other words, is defined by uh, a certain depth of inwardness, inward suffering, that a personality assumes 
and not by an outward event of which the hero is the, the principal agent. The religious hero is deemed great not by any outward victories he may have accomplished, but how, uh, by how he survives and takes account of the losses. So given all of that, um, it's still possible to see even quote-unquote outward signs of Alyosha's religious heroism, if only because the narrator's quote-unquote inside narrative discloses what is not easily or visibly seen from the outside as a distance. Because, I mean, you know, Alyosha constantly suffers as he witnesses so much tragedy. Sure. It is a wonder that he does not succumb <laughs> to this sort of familial dysfunction <laughs> that he endures at every, at every corner. Um, and, and, and he witnesses and stands in the fire and suffers with all those near and dear to him. Kind of like what you were saying earlier about um, uh, Zosima talking about, you know, all Every, of Yeah, everyone's responsible. Everyone's responsible. Um, to everybody. I mean, all of the characters. He just keeps on walking into and suffering from Grushenka to, to Fyodor, to well, Fyodor and Zosima. To, you, can, you can tell he's... Um, you can tell he's a, a clergyman because yeah. anytime he enters the room, somebody just <laughs> yeah. confesses everything yeah. to him. Yeah, yeah, and they trust him. Mm -hmm. they, they trust him. And, uh, but the, this is a guy who feels and suffers the guilt of every guilty party. He is, um, he's empathetic. He, he's empathetic without being destroyed by his sensitivity. He's not a guy too sensitive to live. He's really sensitive. Um, and, and I think this is really important. Because um, heroes save lives, right? I mean, that's what you do. You go into fiery buildings. You're a hero. You know, you're a hero if you save a life. He saves lives because he stands in the fire and suffers and feels guilty with all. I mean, he saves lives. But he fails to save lives too. The mm. novel, the novel ends with him standing over the grave of a child. Mm, yes, as he is preaching to about preaching. Right. Uh, uh, at the stone uh, to some dozen right, others. Right, But that's the, that's the mm -hmm. point. He's allowed to fail. Right. Oh, my gosh, he is allowed to fail because he, too, is human. I mean, he, 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 he can't save everyone. What and, you're saying about a religious hero, that's how Ivan conceives of himself, don't you think? Ivan conceives of himself as this man who's incredibly sensitive to suffering, mm -hmm. but is not at all. But is not at all. Oh, it's very true. I mean, when he talks when he talks about the suffering of children. Even that is a discussion in the abstract. Well, he's clearly never met a child. No, right. Every child in this novel is a little monster. Yeah. <laughs> Sticking pins in dogs. Oh, my gosh, yeah. That's a, that's a wicked scene. I have, I have a really hard time reading yeah, that Yeah, I have one. a really hard time reading that one, too. Well, um, you're a relatively unusual guest for the show because you teach not undergraduate or graduate students, but high schoolers. And I'd really be interested in knowing how your daily life in those trenches influenced your approach to academic scholarship. Well, I, I learned this in part from Howard Hong. And, um, and uh, anybody who knows Howard um, probably has heard me steal various things from Howard. <laughs> yeah, um, we all do that. We all do that. Uh, but um, like Howard, I've, I've, I've always avoided isms um, with high schoolers and also have avoided secondary texts of all kinds when at all possible. 
So, you know, post-structuralism or modernism. I've, I've just avoided these things. I, uh, isms seem to sort of objectify the subject uh, instead of revel in the subject. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that might be that might be simpleton on my part, but um, but I, I see kids' eyes glass over by talking about isms. So I, I sort of I, so so this is kind of why I prefer this minority position of literary criticism that speaks to literature's role in formulating and teaching ethical positions. So I mean, in sort of a Socratic spirit, I try to meet each individual student where he or she is whether that student is at a sixth grade reading level or at a college age reading level. Um, the work I now do at an alternative high school allows me the luxury to do just that. I have fewer students, seven to 12 in a classroom oh, wow. at any given time. Uh, I have a, my own, I have a library that, that can feed, you know, a 19-year-old who has a sixth grade reading level, you know, Gary Paulson's hatchet, and, and, and he could be sitting right next to a girl reading Moby Dick or, or Crime mm. and Punishment who's two years his, her, his junior. And, and they could be talking about both of their books to each other, which is actually really precious. Um, I, I also, I mean, in, in, at least at this alternative high school, I, I really feel like I'm, I'm free, um, or at least a little freer, I suspect, than college professors to respond and answer to adolescents who are simply hungry to hone their critical thinking skills, and who are looking for both positive and negative role models in the form of characters in books that they may relate to on some personal level. So <laughs> the real trick, however, <laughs> is to get them to actually read primary texts right. in a smartphone world and to help them actually want to read those texts. Um, I, uh, I've, I've learned, I, I now recognize that no text is really sacred to me anymore. I'm going to just try to find each student and get books in their hands that they, they can just want to read. Mm -hmm. and, and I can do that now. I couldn't do that as a mainstream high school teacher. Well, now with 30 students, yeah. you, just don't, you don't have the time. Yeah, you don't have the time. You can't do that. Um, but, you know, this, pro you know this, this, this problem of reading... Um, Primary or secondary text. I mean, this is this is not confined to high schoolers. Um, I brought along a passage of of, uh, of from an author and novelist uh, that I've really become interested in, um, Marilyn Robinson, uh, who speaks of graduate student reading habits like this. This is a great line from from Marilyn Robinson. Graduates. This is Marilyn Robinson speaking in a book called The Death of Adam. Graduate students talk of Dickens seminars in which nothing of Dickens is read. Art history seminars in which no art is looked at. It is as if these were subjects we master and advance beyond and would be embarrassed to return to like freshman composition. Dickens must pass through a filter of specialists who can tell us what we must see when we read him. Neither his, Dickens, nor our singularity is of value, nor are we to imagine his spirit acting on ours. That's Marilyn Robinson. So 
So what, what is going on in the heart of an author like Charles Dickens? I think to myself, whom no graduate student is required to read in a Dickens seminar. I, I, I suspect that deconstructionism or post-structuralism or post-post-postmodernism isn't going on in Charles Dickens' heart. For authentic authors and readers, hearts aren't built on isms. My argument is simple. Hearts, at least most high schoolers' hearts, and I suspect most undergraduates' hearts, are instead built on the question of what it means to be human and to have a heart and a mind more or less in concert with one another. So uh, this, <laughs> this argument becomes an ethical argument very quickly, I think, because um, I love this line from um, folk singer John Prine. He says, he sings, some humans ain't human, some humans ain't kind. <laughs> and, and what I take from this is that we are capable of becoming more fully human just as we are capable of becoming inhuman. And so, uh, just as Kierkegaard's authorship was intended to help Christianize the so-called Christians, my modest book is simply intended to help humanize so-called humanists. Well, we've been talking to Jamie Lorenzen. His book, Becoming Human, is out now from Mercer University Press. There'll be a link to it on our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>